Colossians chapter 4, page 1185, we're going to read from verse 12 to the end. Colossians chapter 4. From verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Herapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now we come to the final part of Colossians. I feel quite sad because I've just loved looking through this book for lots and lots of different reasons. And one is just simply that um, the church in Colossae was a great church in some ways, but was also a church that was faced with significant problems, including within its own membership and struggles in terms of its teaching and its understanding of Christ and the culture in which it lived. And as we've examined and looked at this, For me, it's been abundantly clear that uh, it's where we're at also, and this is very applicable and very helpful for us, and even these these last few verses as well. I hope you'll see that there's just such a tremendous amount in it. So what I'm going to do is going to go through the the verses here, go through the names that are, are mentioned, and just identify some things that are said in each situation and try and apply it in our own context and in our own culture. Now, the first is obviously in verse 12, Epaphras. I also want to say, by the way, that uh, I, I hope some of you will be able to identify with at least one of these people, and particularly this gentleman here called Epaphras. I don't know if you ever, you ever get one of these books that sort of wears Wally. Well, I know this sounds really bad, but when I was looking at this, I kept thinking, where's Epaphras in St. Peter's? Where's Epaphras in Dundee? Where's Epaphras in Scotland? Who is he? Epaphras was a native of Colossae. He was an evangelist in his hometown, as well as in Laodicea and Herapolis. Um, Chapter 1, verse 7, go back if you go to the beginning of the, the letter, Paul's thanked the Colossians, thanked God for the Colossians and how they've believed the gospel that came to them. How did it come to them? Chapter 1, verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. In chapter 2 and verse 1 of this same letter, Paul says, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have met me personally. Now, here is the key thing about Epaphras. It's not just that he brought the gospel to the Colossians. It's that he, like Paul, was a man of urgent prayer. He is always wrestling in prayer for you. He prays about a key issue, that they would stand firm in all the will of God, that they would be mature, that they would be fully assured. 
Now, as we've looked at Colossians, the Colossian heresy has been that people would come in and say, look, here's a quick and easy way to become mature. Here's a quick and easy way to become super saints. Here's a quick and easy way. You know, you, know, you don't, you don't, Paul, what? I mean, okay, he started us off. Epaphras, fine. But we've got the power. We got the secret. We've got the knowledge. And Paul has written this letter to the Colossians to say, actually, no. What you need to do is you need to recognize that Epaphras, he's the one who doesn't have a quick and easy way for you, but he is the one who is always wrestling in prayer for you. Praying that they would be filled, praying that they would be complete. And that's what I, the whole theme of this morning, if you like, is completion. Now, there's lots and lots of things that we can say about that, and I just want to apply some of them very, very, very directly. Firstly, okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to think how to say this. Firstly, I'm somewhat tired of people who come into the church here and go, wow, it's great, it's great, it's great. And then they discover something that's not quite perfect or not quite right or not quite complete. And they say, well, unless it's sorted out, I'm going to go to a church that's perfect. Except they don't say perfect. But they, people with the church seem to be looking for the finished product. They want to buy into something which is already there. Now, there are all kinds of problems with that. Spurgeon's famous quote to the woman who said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm leaving your church because it's not perfect. And he replied, well, that's good. When you find the perfect church, please don't join it. You'll only spoil it. That is a comment that maybe we need to take on board as well. But this crazy idea that somehow we've got this church and it's complete. Or worse still, what you do is you get people who live in this mythical past. This happens in the free church. It happens in lots of conservative evangelical churches where they live in the mythical past. Oh, I remember the days when the free church was this and the free church was that and the free, and it's all downhill since then. So their view of the church is always, it starts off really good and then from a revival or something and then it goes down, 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 down. And the thing is, they live in constant fear. But a much more biblical attitude is just simply to say, by the way, if you think things are only going to get worse, you'll be proved right. There's one, one way, you'll pretty get a well guaranteed uh, way of, of being right. But the thing that comes out of Colossians, and the thing that's there in reality is, we are not complete. We are not there yet. We are not whole. We are being healed. We are being saved. We are being restored. We are being built up. We are being... Uh, Adorned as the bride of Christ, if you like. But it's not finished. And that's why you almost want to, to somehow drill it into people's heads. Please be patient. God is not finished with us yet. No one's, no one's there. No one's made it. No one's perfect. All of us have faults. In fact, we have faults that are so deep that if other people saw them, they would be nauseated by us. But we live this fantasy world. And we play at fantasy church. And Paul recognizes that with the Colossians and says, no, no. Here's a man. It's so hard for you to be complete that it takes a man like Epaphras 
to wrestle and to struggle in prayer for you. Now, my simple question in that is not where's Wally, but where's Epaphras? Which one of you is wrestling in prayer for the maturity and the completion of your brothers and sisters? We can hardly pray even about ourselves. We don't. We, we, you know, people use language. They talk about prayer warriors. They talk about um, spiritual warfare and so on. Well, this is where the rubber hits the road. Not in kind of grandiose schemes, but just simply coming before God in prayer and praying for your Christian brother or sister, praying for the one who really annoys you, praying for the one whom you really like, praying for those who are really struggling. I uh, listened to an extremely sad interview with uh, a man called Frankie Schaefer, who's the son of Francis Schaefer, and he's just written a book attacking his dad, and especially his mother, and his mother's still alive, and the secular press and others in the, in the U.S. have picked up on this and love it because he's saying my home wasn't perfect. Well, of course, of course it wasn't perfect. But it's, 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 I find it incredibly sad that he's just come and, and basically just dissed his whole family and his father's work and everything that was involved in that. And there's a bitterness and a harshness and something in there that's just... That's, that, that, that's not right. And I think, you know, when he, for example, he says something like his father had a temper. Well, <laughs> I mean, okay. Maybe there's a few people here who don't have a bad temper. But there's an awful lot of us who do. And just because we're Christians doesn't mean to say that that never gets expressed or shown. That's why we've got to be urgent in prayer. We've got to be like this man, Epaphras. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. And here's a very, very simple test. If I handed you out a piece of paper just now and said, please write down the people in this congregation you prayed for this week. And then secondly, please write down the people that you have wrestled in prayer for this week, that you have pleaded with the Lord for. I wonder how big the sheet of paper would need to be. Where's Epaphras? Luke and Demas. There's a a tremendous thing there. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Now, it's an interesting definition of Luke, by the way, because he's only called the doctor here. And this is, of course, the Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the, the Luke who wrote the book of Acts. The Luke who is... In Rome, with Paul, and with Mark, possibly at this time actually, it's around this time that the Gospel of Luke was written. So Paul's in prison, Luke is not in prison, Luke is researching and writing up his Gospel. Uh, For those of you who've ever done a thesis or anything like that, in effect, this is what Luke is doing. I have carefully researched, he says, most excellent Theophilus. I've investigated the witnesses. And here he is in Rome, he's no longer traveling around, he's got his parchments, he's got his documents, and he's finally, without the use of word or any kind of computer, he's writing up his gospel. And he sends it, (coughs) and he's sending uh, greetings as well. Now one of the things about Luke, and again, this is just part of 
how the church works. He's a big man. He's a big-hearted man. He's an intelligent man. And he's incredibly loyal and faithful to Paul and to the cause of the gospel. And there's someone else called Demas, who we know very little about, who also sends greetings. But here's how things go wrong. Uh, And by the way, again, this happens. You get people in a church, and maybe you're a younger Christian, and you've gone along, and there's Christians there. And then a couple of years down the road, one of these people who was a leader in that church has renounced the faith. And you think, oh dear, well, if he renounced the faith, that's it. You know, how do I know that I'm for real? How do I know it's for real? It's got to all be false. And it kind of gets an extreme reaction. So on the one hand, you get people who absolutely revere their leaders. On the other hand, you get people who, when the leaders let them down, go completely the opposite way. Well, what happened with Demas is very interesting because in a later letter, which we read in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas, having loved this world, has forsaken me. He's gone. He's scarbered off to Greece. He's gone to Thessalonica. And the reason he's done it has got nothing to do with the gospel. In fact, almost the very opposite. He's loved this world, the things of this world, the comfort, the materialism, the lifestyle. He's chosen that ahead of Jesus Christ. Now, that's something we don't like to think about. Was Demas a Christian? Certainly outwardly, certainly professed to be, certainly a leader in the early church. Was he born again? Only God knows. But we know that he was a professing Christian. And we know this, that professing Christians, we face many, many choices in life. And sometimes we make the wrong choice and sometimes we desert God and we desert Jesus Christ. I I personally will never, ever, ever forget the most serious example I've ever seen of that was a young man who we asked to come and meet with the elders in the church in Barora. He did come and we were talking about a particular situation and it was put very bluntly to him. You choose this or you choose Jesus Christ. And he actually said these words, I do not choose Jesus Christ. For me, it was the most chilling thing I've heard from somebody. Well, by the way, that particular gentleman, a number of years later, uh, came to confess and to repent of what he had done and the harm that he had done. But at least he was honest. Because I'll tell you this, there are people who come to church, and maybe even you might be in that position here this morning, who, though outwardly your profession is for Jesus Christ, yet in reality your choice is something else. If you're given the choice, and sometimes you are, if you're given the choice between loving this world and following Jesus Christ, you're going to stick with this world because you're not sure about Jesus, because you're not sure about yourself, because there's so many different things that are going on, and at least in this world, you can have the comfort. You can have the comfort of a good home. You can have the comfort of a relationship with somebody who loves you. You can choose that. But you know that what you're doing is you're saying, "Mm mm-mm. Yes, Jesus, I want you when you can come along with everything that I've got. But if you're asking me to choose, you know, it's almost like in any kind of relationship where someone says, you know, I'm going to make you choose. It's my way or the highway. And, and say, well, no, 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 I, I, I want it. I want it all. Well, perhaps people don't have the right to make us choose like that. But the one person who does is Jesus Christ. 
And all of us will face key moments in our life when the Lord asks us, who do you choose? What do you choose? And we can be like Luke, who chose to follow and was loyal and faithful to Christ. Or we can be like Demas, who loved the world and forsook Christ. Now, I suspect if you met Demas, he would uh, be going to the church in Thessalonica. He would be saying, no, 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 I've not done that. But in his heart and in his mind and in his actions, that is what had happened. And Paul uh, warns in, in Timothy, he warns Timothy about that. And again, we, we need to challenge ourselves. Who are we? Uh, uh, and I'm, just in case you misunderstand this, that's a choice that I face. And I, personally, I think I face it regularly. There is an enormous temptation to compromise in the Christian faith. You know, and now, this is not, how do I explain this? This is not about being legalistic. It's not about becoming ultra-religious. That actually can be a compromise. That can be worldliness as well. It is about doing what you know Jesus Christ wants you to do. It is about, sometimes in your Christian faith, you actually do have to take up the cross. You do have to follow. You do have to renounce. You do have to turn away from certain things. You do have to be prepared to give up. And that's, that's hard. And Paul faced that many, many, many times. And so I believe, do we and will we? What about the Laodiceans? Let's just say something about them because they're mentioned twice, verse 13 and also verse 15. And uh, Nympha is mentioned there. I'll say something more about her in a moment. Now, Laodicea was about 10 miles to the northwest of Colossae. And there was a letter that was sent to them. This uh, letter you see in verse 16. After this letter is read, make sure it's read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. The letter from Laodicea, there's lots of options that people discuss. And if you want to go into all the arguments about it, fine. It, for me, it's completely irrelevant. It could be um, Ephesia, the letter to the Ephesians, which is very, very close. Or it could be a letter that was written from Laodicea to Paul. But the one thing that we do know about this church in Laodicea was that there was a letter written to it. Turn with me to Revelation, last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. And it was a letter, comes after Colossians, as Paul is not referring to this one. But this is what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, Revelation 3 verse 14. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. <coughs> you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This church, the Laodiceans, Jesus is saying, you've shut me out. You say you're rich. You say you have need of nothing. You say you're complete and you've made it. This is a a, a community which was actually quite a wealthy community anyway. It's a community in which the church appeared to be prosperous. It's a community in which the church could say, ah, we've got the Bible. Ah, we've got the traditions. Ah, we've got all these things. It's a community that would probably be orthodox and sound. A community which you'd come into the church and you'd say, wow, this is wonderful. This is really, really good. Well, it's a great church. And Jesus says of that church, you're wretched. You're pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. And I'm shut out. And you can't, you're so blind, you can't even see that I'm shut out. I I find, you know, you read Revelation 3, and that verse is always used as an evangelistic verse. You know, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart and so on. Now, in context, it is not an evangelistic verse. It is not an appeal from the Lord for people who who are not believers, who don't profess to be believers, uh, to people saying, look, just let Jesus into your life. That's not what's being said. It is Jesus appealing to the church saying, what are you doing? You've shut me out. And I think, personally, that we are just so at that in the church in Scotland that Jesus gets shut out. I was at a a service where the thought just went through my mind. If you took Jesus out of this, 95% of it would just continue. How true is that of us? How true is that of our religions, that of our lives? You take Jesus out of the equation... You can still keep all the religious stuff. Still keep the Bible if you want, at least in some form. Still keep the worship. Still keep the gathering together. Still keep the liturgy. <coughs> still keep the kind of moralism and the sense of, of uh, going to worship. But for all the difference that Jesus makes in our lives, he might as well not be there. He's shut out. And yet we say we are rich and have need of nothing. You and I, this is a, a, it sounds in one sense so negative, but we only begin to make progress when we come to the Lord and say, Lord, I really am blind. I really am poor. I really am messed up. We really, really, really need your help. It's interesting that uh, I've been at a couple of church meetings recently where, you know what struck me? was the spirit of fear amongst the leaders and amongst the people in the church. Afraid, afraid of change, afraid of what people will do, afraid of what might happen. Fear, fear of the unknown. And it struck me again just how far away from Jesus Christ that is. Perfect love drives out fear. I don't think that there is fear in that sense in terms of following Jesus Christ. There is concern and there is care and there is compassion. There is realism and so on. But not the fear. 
Not the fear that says we can't walk. Not the fear that says we can't do anything. And I, 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 I worry for us in some ways. And I think we need to call upon the Lord that we would not have the Laodicean spirit. And we would not have a spirit of fear, a spirit of, of self-righteousness and a spirit of fear. Where people say, we've got this, we're rich, we have need of nothing, but we're afraid we might lose it. Whereas in reality, we probably got to come to the Lord and say, Lord, we are, we are so poor. And yet Colossians, you see, it's, it's not depressing in that sense. Because if you come to Colossians, what you're being told is, you're poor, but if you've got Christ, you've got everything. So it's, it's that juxtaposition of thinking, yeah, we're fine, we're doing well. But being without Christ, which really means you've got nothing. Or thinking, we're in a mess, we're really struggling here, things are not going so well. And yet, if you've got your eyes focused and fixed on Jesus Christ, and if you've got Christ, then actually you are wealthy, wealthy, wealthy beyond your imagination. Fourth person I want to mention, or the fourth group, is Nympha. Go back, going back to um, Colossians 4. Nympha and the church that meets in her house. Um, it's just a great wee side detail. Probably this is in Laodicea, I think, not in Colossae. Um, it is, uh, Calvin's comment on this is every home is to be a little church, which is a very, very uh, interesting and perceptive idea. I've only just taken these out. There are probably more, but Mary's home in Jerusalem, Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, Philemon in Colossae, Lydia in Philippi, Gaius in Corinth, Phoebe in Sencria. These are all spoken of as the church. And I think what's happening is not what some people call house fellowships and so on. But these are smaller circles of fellowship within the larger fellowship. Where people get to know one another and be able to share more with one another and so on. And I just this, this idea of uh, Nympha's church. You know, it, 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 it doesn't sort of connect I think where we're at in some ways because um, you know let's say we were up in Forfar and there was a group meeting and we said oh it's Maggie's church that doesn't sound right you know or we say it's Myrtle's church or we say it's you know whatever but that's what Paul says you know it's, well, he's actually saying it is the church of Jesus Christ it meets in, in, in Nympha's house we know nothing about her except we know that there's a church that gathered in her home, possibly uh, part of a, a wider grouping, possibly part of a, a bigger grouping. But again, that's just part of the reality of where we're at. Not that we're atomized different groups, and that's one of the problems where you get Christians being all super spiritual saying, well, I'm a Christian, I have some people around in my house, we're the church, we don't need anybody else. That's not what's being taught. It is rather this idea of yeah, we're the church when we meet together like this. But we're also the church when we have our house fellowships. We're also the church when we pastorally, as we were trying to see last week, care for one another and wrestle in prayer for one another and so on. And I, I think it would change your attitude and how you do things. If you actually thought about your home, actually this is the church. You just think about your house. This is the church. This is the church in my street. This is the church for the people around me. This is the church for the people in this area. This is actually the church. My home is a church. 
Now, there are problems there. For example, you could have people in your home who, who are not believers. That makes it a different matter. Yes, of course. <coughs> it may be that you're not in a position where you can have people into your home and things like that. Fine. There are, you know, there are always differences in different ways. But I think for many, many people, it would be immensely helpful, instead of thinking, my home is my castle, it's my fortress, it's where I shut everything out, and especially the church, if you started thinking, wait a minute, my home is the church. I know sometimes that those of us who are involved in Christian work, that especially if we're men, um, because we are used to identifying ourselves with our work, it can be a real pain for people in our families, and especially our spouses, where they think, oh, here we go again. You know, does there any, be any time for us? And that can create all sorts of problems. Sometimes it's a legitimate concern, and sometimes it's an uh, overemphasized one. But <coughs> if you have a home where husband and wife are united, and members of the household, I mean, okay, I know that none of you have personal servants, as far as I know, but if you did, but children and so on, you're united and you're saying, this home is the church. I'll tell you what it does. It makes an enormous difference. It means, for example, that people who are coming into your house and they're meeting with you, they're meeting with the church. They may, they may hate that idea, but that's actually what's happening and what's going on. So think about that whole idea of every home is to be uh, a little church. And that helps us when we think about St. Peter's in terms of growing and developing. Every home is a little church. Then um, let me say something about one of my favorite characters in the Bible, just because of his name, Archippus. Uh, Archie, I, I mean, I, when someone said to me there was an Archie in the Bible, I said, no way. Archie is about as Scottish as you can get. I've got a friend called Archie McSporran, which you cannot get more Scottish than that. And uh, yet, it's, it's, and the McSporans really are a clan. That's for real. People thought that was a wind-up. But no, and Archie, my good friend Archie McSporran is uh, it's a good guy. And uh, I, I, just, I just love the idea of there being an Archie in the Bible. Sorry, that's just my rather twisted mind. But here's, here's Archippus, and he's a great character in some ways that we know. What we know about him from Philemon is that he is the son of... Uh, Philemon and Aphia, probably the son of Philemon and Aphia. That's the, the normal understanding from Philemon um, verse 2, where to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. There it is again, meeting in the home. And what we know about Archippus, Philemon was probably the pastor or one of the elders in the church, and son uh, Archippus, look what's said about him. He devoted himself to the cause of the gospel. That's what it says in Philemon 2. And he's been given a work. See to it that you complete the work you've received in the Lord. He was from Colossae, but probably serving the church, perhaps in Laodicea. Now it may be, and this is just, this is a guess, but it fits. It may be that this, he was a young minister. That he had a particular call. Possibly that he was the minister in Laodicea. And Paul is telling him. In fact it's interesting. Paul is not telling him. Paul is telling the church in Colossae. Get this young guy. And encourage him. Tell him finish it. 
That's interesting. It's not a personal message. This is like, you know, when you do these computer messages, emails, and you get one that's a personal message, or on Facebook, it's a personal message. But this is one that's for the whole world to see, or at least for the church. The church is being told, say to Archippus, complete the work you have received in the Lord. See to it that you complete this work. I, I, I love the idea of a minister being told by his congregation, uh, be on the guard, finish it, don't stop. Quite often what you find is congregations, it's, um, I'll say this, it's like um, presenters. See the guy who's presenting at the front? What always happens is a congregation traditionally tends to drag, to drag the presenter, you know, slow down. So by the end of the psalm, it's always going a wee bit slower. Uh, often in congregations, you find sometimes, yes, it's the leadership who are dragging, but sometimes you'll find it's the congregation who are saying, whoa, slow down. And here... It's the other way around, where the congregation have been told by poor, get that young man to finish his work. Tell him to get on with it. Tell him to complete it. I think what an encouragement, actually, that must have been to Archibus. Don't stop. Keep going. Finish it, Archie. That's, well, Archibus. Finish it. That's the kind of uh, common that is being made. We need, by the way, in Scotland, let me say this, we desperately need more young men to be involved in preaching and communicating the gospel. And as a church, we need to be looking for some of the, some of the young guys in our fellowship and saying, look, we, you're going to have to do this, and it's going to be a lifetime's work, and we're behind you, and we're going to support you, and we're going to encourage you and help you in that. And my personal belief is that uh, God is raising up uh, young men who could be very, very suitable for that. But it's a long work, and it's a hard work. And it needs the encouragement that comes from the, the whole fellowship. And then the last thing is here is just simply where Paul, we're told to remember Paul. Not just Archippus and Nympha and these other people. Paul had dictated most of this letter. Verse 18, he writes it in his own hand. The reason that was done was normally to prevent fraud. Paul writes in his own, he has a scribe who takes down the letter. And at the end, he writes, doesn't just sign his name usually writes the last verse. He says, I'm writing this greeting in my own hand. And there's just a beautiful request for prayer. He's saying, I'm writing in this hand, and this hand is a chained hand. This hand is in jail for Jesus Christ. He doesn't go into fantastic detail. He's never bemoaned his situation to the Colossians. But it's a, it's, I think it's a great prayer, and he finishes with a very simple, short prayer. Grace be with you. Grace, the richest and greatest blessing of all. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is a, it's a great teaching. It's a great letter for us. We face many of the same issues. We face cultural confusion, religious confusion, legalism, traditionalism, false doctrine, pride, human sin. We need guidance. We need to be challenged, but we need to be encouraged. And the solution has to be the same. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 9. Look what the solution is to all of this. <clears throat> and that's how, this is how it makes so much more sense. Chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power. What we need, what we desperately need, is to know 
Christ better. We may not be the Laodiceans who've shut him completely out. But I suspect that for many of us, he's in the, in the garden or he's in the, uh, a room that we never, ever go. He's not really at the center and the heart of our lives. We need to know Christ. We need to come to Christ. We need to be filled with Christ. We need to live Christ. Chapter 3, again, you see that in verses 1 and 2. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. But here's the problem, you see, because there are people who say, well, my need in my life just now is I'm so lonely. I need a man. I need a woman. I need somebody. And I'm going to use Jesus to help me get that person. And they said, no, it's the wrong way around. It's the wrong way around. You need Christ. Get Christ. Other things will follow as you need them. I need money. So I'm going to use Jesus. To get. I need health. So I'm going to use Jesus. I need happiness. So I'm going to use Jesus. No, no, no. That, that's, that's back again to the child who says, dad, dad, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Can you give me 10 pound? That's not how God works. It's a cheap and shallow way of looking for God. To know Christ in his beauty, even when everything else seems so ugly and distorted, is the most wonderful, wonderful thing in the world. I think, uh, apart from the Bible, nobody, to my mind, moves me in understanding this more than than John Piper. And when you you hear him talk about... um, just the the glory and the beauty of Christ in the midst of the most horrendous situations it it just helps you to realize just how precious and how wonderful it is and you see that's what the life of grace is it's living a life with Jesus Christ it's putting your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water it's walking in the darkness with Christ. It's being carried by Christ. It's loving Christ. It's longing for Christ. We have a job to be done as the Colossians did. We have a ministry. We have to get on with that ministry, but not because we want to justify ourselves, but we have to get on with it because it is completing the work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. See, that's why, you know, you look at something like this, like I said about the cards, and I know that there there are those of you who just sit there and you think, that's just like an advertising gimmick. No, it's not. If there are people whom you love and you genuinely love and you actually genuinely really believe the Bible, yeah, you don't want to shove things down their throat and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely not. But if you really believe that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and there are people walking in darkness, you want to see them that light... You will not only wrestle in prayer for them, but you will do absolutely everything you possibly can to try to help them to see and to understand Jesus. And that should be the thing that, to be honest, drives and motivates you and would almost overwhelm you if it wasn't for the fact that you were seeing the beauty of Christ at the same time. Just to know that there are people who don't know. People who don't understand, people who don't see Christ. So I come to Jesus in ignorance. I come to Jesus saying, Lord, I am blind. Lord, I need to see so much more. But I also come in gratitude saying, thank you for what you have revealed. 
But I also come heavily burdened, saying, well, but my neighbor, but my sister, but my brother, but my my workmates, but my friends, they don't know. They don't know. And I want them to see you. And that's where this comes all the way around full circle to this church, to the whole idea of the church showing all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And that's where we just simply ask, is it? Is it bearing fruit? Is it growing? Is it the case that we see that God has given us a work to do and we're encouraging one another and we've been told like Archippus, get on with it, finish it. Because one day, we're going to, that paraphrase that we sung, we are going to be like Paul, where we're going to say, this is it. It's the end. I've finished my race. And what a dreadful thing on your deathbed to lie there and think. Well, I mean, we'll all think, I think we could have done so much better. But that's not the issue. But to lie there and think, you know, I wasted 30 years as a Christian. I wasted 40 years as a Christian. I lived for this world. I deserted the Lord. I deserted his people. I lived for myself. I lived only for what I could get at this moment in time. I forgot eternity. I forgot Jesus. Oh yes, we'll get into heaven because we're Christians. But we're as one who escapes through the fire. Our deeds don't follow us because they're not worthy of Jesus Christ. And so I think the message for us from Colossians is finish it. Do it. Do what Christ has called us to do. And don't be afraid of anything or anyone. He will be glorified. And nothing that you or I do will stop or prevent that. May God bless his word. Let's pray.